1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. My name is David Ryan. This week we'll be speaking to David Beer, who is a, le- a senior lecturer in sociology at York University in the UK. We're going to be discussing his latest book, uh, which is called Popular Culture and New Media, The Politics of Circulation. His work deals uh, primarily with a range of issues in cultural sociology, um, but he draws on a variety of different critical theoretical perspectives. He currently blogs at thinkingculture.wordpress.com and he can also be followed on Twitter as David G. Beer. So we're here today with David Beer, who's senior lecturer at York, um, to talk about his new book, uh, Popular Culture and New Media, which is a really fascinating look at the combination of new forms of media, particularly um, things like software and popular culture. And it, when I read it, it challenged a lot of the, uh, the assumptions I had about certain things in popular culture. So we're going to get into that over the course uh, of this discussion. But f- before we start, I think it'd be really good if you could tell our listeners something about yourself, please, Dave. So uh, could you just tell me a bit about um, how you ended up at York and what your your background is?
0: Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I, after, I le- after I left university in 1998, I uh, had a couple of jobs at uh, working in call centres and things, so I decided that I wanted to go back and do a bit more sociology. So um, right. I came to do an MA. I came to do an MA at York um, to, to, to try to open my career options up, really. And um, I uh, I studied with uh, a few people at York that on sociology, contemporary culture, and that got my interest going. So I stayed on at York to do a PhD, and it ended up that my PhD coincided with some transformations in music cultures and popular culture. So I did a PhD on the digitalisation of contemporary music cultures, and that tried to kind of unite transformations in themselves with uh, technical and infrastructural transformations in, in, the, in the nature of the uh, media, and tried to understand those connections and differences and how they were altering things. So I finished that in, uh, in 2006, and I went then to work on the ESRCE Society programme as a um, a translational research fellow, which meant that I was working in the centre hub of that programme um, with uh, Roger Burroughs and uh, trying to think through some of the issues that were coming out of that programme and write about them, really, and organise events and the like. And then I left that job to work at York St. John um, as a senior lecturer in business faculty, and then um, I went, Then there was a job advertised at York in culture, and I, that was the area I wanted to work in, sociology and culture. So I then came back to York... To take up that post, um, and I've been here for for five years now, uh, working through working in, in that area
1: really predominantly. And and it's interesting because that um, sort of intellectual history you've described really comes through in popular culture and new media, I think. Um, and the sorts of concerns you've got right. uh, are really present in the book, which is is really interesting to see how you've sort of carried on that project uh, consistently over over a period of time. Um, yeah it'd be good to sort of turn to the book now actually because um, I think I said earlier it really challenged some of my assumptions Uh, and as I understood it the central kind of idea in the book or the central thesis was this idea about circulation being really important and the kind of architecture and infrastructure that governs circulation of culture as being the kind of the thing we should really pay attention to Um, so could you just tell us a bit about sort of why they were important to you and what your starting point was for that
0: yeah I can i mean it, it, it's kind of a culmination of 10 years of, of work a away because it, it as you say it came out of the back of the phd mm. none of the, it's not none of the phds in there but it kind of opened up some doors that i then explored over time and i that was actually the book was intended to kind of be a an end point to the 10 years of research, really, in a way, you know, to bring together some of the things I'd found out. So it was all written fresh for the book. There's no kind of articles replicated in there. But I tried to think through some of the things I'd not been able to say. And what I wanted to do was try to think about what dimensions of culture are we not capturing in Mm -hmm. cultural sociology? That's kind of what I've been trying to do, really, over that period. What things, what are the kind of blind spots that we've got, in a way, You know, what are the things that our methods and conceptual ideas are kind of almost pushing us away from? So what I've been trying to do is look to other disciplines often for ideas to think about how you might be able to illuminate some of those blind spots. So I'm really pleased it challenged some of the ideas about culture. That's great because that's what I was hoping to do, really. So that was how I ended up writing about that, was it it seemed to me there was this kind of like need to to grapple with the, the infrastructures and the materiality of contemporary popular cultures that are that often overlooked and try to think about how they interfaced into people's experiences of culture and the way that they consumed and interact with culture. That's what I was trying to get at, I suppose.
1: And, and you do that in a, a variety of ways in the book. Uh, the first one, um, and I, I'll sort of kind of dip in and out of the various chapters, but the first thing I found really interesting uh, was the way that uh, you have a real kind of challenge to traditional sociology of culture in the book because traditional sociology of culture might say something like your cultural tastes are formed by uh, your peer group or your environment or yeah. uh, maybe your class yeah. position or your status, whereas you point very directly to the sort of infrastructures that underpin uh, yeah. the way people consume culture.
0: That's right. That, that was that was one of the things I'd hoped to get at, particularly in the chapter on algorithms in the
1: book, hmm.
0: was to try to think about how, Cultural taste, there's a lot of talk about cultural taste and cultural sociology, absolutely right, and I did want to kind of take, tackle that head on and suggest, actually that some of the ideas we've had about the way people's tastes form might have altered over time as the media through which they, tr- they consume those cultural forms have also transformed. So in the chapter on algorithms, for instance, I suggest that one of the things that's missing there is the way the algorithm... What's interesting is the way that the cultural tastes are being reformed and change, being reshaped by these algorithms. So I was thinking about the way recommendation systems present something to people and therefore change their cultural encounters, change their experience, their cultural landscapes in different ways that we perhaps haven't thought about and therefore might be reshaped in taste. But also, it's not always just about the visibility. It's not always just about recommendations and quite obvious kind of algorithmic input. It's also to do with the way that the visibility of things the visibility of cultural forms are altered by algorithms. The way that news feeds and the like actually present certain things that they think that think will be of interest here. So it seems to me that actually the way algorithms are designed and put together starts to become interesting if you're trying to understand cultural tastes. But also the way then that the outputs of these algorithms in um, the cultural media the media through which people are consuming culture might also be having an input into the formation of their cultural tastes. In other words, it isn't just a product necessarily of friendship networks, social networks and the like. It's actually got are the, kind of infrastructural influences potentially in the shaping of people's cultural tastes, and that's what I wanted to try to get at. So I did it in the algorithms chapter in particular, but also in the, the chapter on archives and cultural archives. I tried to think about the way that, Um, metadata, the way things are tagged, the way things are classified, might also have an input in the types of cultural encounters we have, which ultimately then might shape people's tastes.
1: One of the things I found really really interesting um, about the sort of challenge you set yourself in the book was to talk about those processes around both um, algorithms for sort of presenting culture and for archiving culture, but in a way that wasn't just restricted to a particular case study that would be sort of you know outdated in yeah uh, six months or, or a year so i mean when when you're speaking there are obvious things you might think of in terms of like amazon amazons you might like yeah,
0: yeah. twitter's
1: recommendations or something like that Definitely. but you, you sort of set up the challenge of um thinking about these things in a way that transcends just the case studies and that yeah. comes through really clearly in the introduction so i wonder if you could kind of Explain yeah. what what that that kind of challenge was and how you overcame it. Yeah,
0: I mean, but that that challenge it seemed came, um, came across quite in, quite early in my work. When in, right in 2007 with Roger Burroughs, and we we did a piece on the sociology of Web 2.0 as it was called then, and we were trying and we opened that really by thinking, well, how do you actually do a sociology of stuff that is changing quite quickly and actually what you're writing about can be out of date before the piece is published because as we put it then, you know, uh, drawing on uh, the work of Barry Wellman, internet time is operating more quickly than academic publishing time, effectively. (laughs) That That was a problem we were faced with. So anything you're doing can look quite dated quite quickly. So I was thinking if you're writing a book, which you want to kind of endure a bit longer maybe than a journal article, which can be more responsive, Mm. that actually, how do you address that? So, in this instance, and I've done it differently in other pieces where I've tried to think about how you, you tackle and, and keep up with cultural change in different ways. In this instance, what I want to do is maybe do something a little bit more conceptual with the book that to, that actually transcends, as you put it, some of those changes and try to think across some of the changes so that whoever comes to the book will hopefully be able to use the ideas within it and apply those to the kind of, Transformations they're observing because I thought it's not just about time, is it? It's not just about change over time. You know, somebody coming to the book in a year or two years and the examples looking dated. I wanted it to be able to transcend geography as well. And you know, I teach on a um, on a, a a master's course on social media management, which is a very international course, and the students come with very different examples. So. I wanted it to kind of be able to move across geographies as well. That was the hope. I mean, I, I don't know if that's worked, but that was kind of the idea. that the, it's, it's about the ideas and the conceptual ideas there in response to this kind of overarching changes. It's trying to get the kind of overarching changes rather than specific examples.
1: Um, what are those sort of theoretical underpinnings then? Because you've got mm. several kind of core ideas in the book, particularly this yeah. idea of assemblage um, or assemblage, yeah. yeah, how you pronounce it. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you could kind of unpack that yeah. term and say how that fed into the, uh, yeah. the writing of the book. There are quite a
0: few conceptual ideas, I suppose, that kind of, like a bit of a sort of a sort of bit like, I'm quite influenced by Walter Benjamin, there's a bit of a, a kind of constellation of concepts there, really. And they come together in the conclusion. There's like a table in the conclusion that shows you some of the conceptual ideas and how they, how they work together. Because I realised when I was doing the conclusion there was quite a lot of conceptual ideas across the chapters. But I set, I mean, I set it up in a way, by turning to, to human geography, which is something I do quite a few times in the book, really. And I wanted to start by setting up the, uh, the material issues I was trying to play with. So in Chapter 2, I set up by going through objects, infrastructures and mm. assemblage and trying to think about the different scales, because part of the issue here is about the scales of analysis that you work on. So I was thinking about the nature of contemporary objects and how they capture data about us, how they then fit into infrastructures in these broad informational infrastructures that we live within. But then try the assemblage idea, I suppose, the data assemblage idea is about bringing those things together to try to think about how we then fit into and how these objects and infrastructures and our bodies then sort of come together in the consumption of culture. So it's trying to think across those. But then conceptually, I developed that in a number of different ways in, in the chapters. So we talk about the infrastructures of participation and trying to think about how they shape people's engagements with media. I try to think about the the nature of bodily territory through the work of um, Neil Brenner and Stuart Eldon in the chapter on the body, for for example. So there are a number of kind of conceptual ideas within the chapters as well. But they're all trying to think through the nature of the contemporary sort of cultural assemblages that we live within and how those cultural assemblages shape our engagements, interactions, organisation, participation with culture of different forms, I suppose.
1: Could you give a few examples of that? Because one of the things I always find interesting talking to academics yeah. about their work is how you connect up uh, the sort of high-level theory with the kind yeah. of the everyday experience. Yeah. And I know that's something that um, in the book you're keen to do, to not just have sure. a theoretical text, but um, kind of connect things up with, with everyday life.
0: Yeah. I suppose that happens in, in a sort of different scales within the chapters and in different registers. Um, but to give a few examples, I suppose, in the chapter on the body, which is quite a long chapter towards the end of the book, where I try, I wanted to think about how you can kind of place the body back into some of these it's about different ways in which these data circulations are describing in so, the book kind
1: of tap into bodily practice. Just, One of the ways that yeah, you, you uh, just cut out, just okay. as you started talking about the body. So if you could okay. start talking about it. Yeah, yeah okay.
0: thanks no problem. So I was trying to think about the different way in which these circulations of data are shown in the book, how they're often called you, but I wanted to think about how they fed back into bodily practice through the devices that we use, through interfaces and the like. So what I did was, there was kind of broad conceptual ideas there, but I tried to then hone in upon the idea of bodily territory because it seems to me there's a question there about the way that bodily territory is opened up by our use of devices, the way our body interfaces in the environment in the way that Donna Haraway and Catherine Hales and William Mitchell describe, that the body's opened up. And I want to think about how on this other side we've got this literature that says the body's closed down by these devices that we put into kind of sonic bubbles, for example, in the work of Michael Bull. And it seems to me that's quite an interesting tension there. So in that chapter in particular, then I developed, tried to think through the way in which these effective bodily spaces are created as we use these devices to both open our body up to informational flows and close them down. In other words, how do we create a sense of bodily territory in our everyday lives? So quite a grounded way of thinking about data circulations is to think about how we might use an iPod or our phone or whatever as a way of, Open our body up to information, but also creating a bodily territory there. So that was kind of a specific example. But elsewhere, the chapter on archives, for example, I think that's quite a grounded chapter in that you're trying to think about the power dynamics that are there in the way that culture is ordered and organised. A question I think that's been overlooked in a large part. And in that instance, really, what one. You can think about the way that they're organising content and that content is being ordered within them and try to then understand the power dynamics that are there, how are things accessed, who decides what goes in the archive, who tags that, classifies it with metadata, which therefore influences who finds that stuff and who encounters it. So there's quite grand stuff there about the way that you try to think more structurally about the way social media operate so that you don't... One of the things I wanted to get away from in earlier work as well was to sort of think, well... Because stuff is, these media are decentralised doesn't mean they're democratic. So trying to think about the way that power plays out in these media forms, and in that instance it's the way that they're actually ordered and organised in an everyday sense and the way that they're
1: structured. But power's a really interesting question, actually, because mm. I have a more sort of speculative uh, question that came from the book, was... Mm. Um, Do you think these are sort of good or bad things then? I mean, is it sort of a good or bad thing that, say, Amazon um, not only gives us recommendations Mm -hmm. but in some ways is shaping our taste Mm -hmm. through its algorithms that, you know, uh, Twitter is shaping not just our tastes but our sort of um, experiences of friendship uh, and social network because of its its algorithms. So wh- where do you stand on are these kind of positive changes? Are they negative? How, how, how can we kind of think I, of them?
0: Well, I find it to, to not be ambivalent really about it because it, it, I suppose as a, as a sociologist, I'm, I'm trying to capture those things and trying to understand them. Um, I mean, on a, from a personal point of view, you know, recommendation system at Amazon is a really useful thing because I'm finding I find books that are of use to me, not just from a sociology, but also you know things I want to read. You know, what's yeah. uh, what's Michael Conley writing or I mean, ranking or something, but yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, or, or what album you know, what album should I be buying now that I'm struggling to keep up with popular culture. You know, but on the other side of it, you know, you do find you might find sociology now. I've written, been writing it as well about the, how the politics of circulation, describing the book, also influence academic research. And you can think about how the things you discover, how articles and books, how so articles maybe through Google Scholar or whatever else it might be that are recommended to you on there, or the recommendations you get on something like Amazon, might actually be shaping your research practices as mm-hmm. a sociologist because you might be discovering things on there that then become part of your lectures. And your writing and the research that you do, so it actually might be shaping sociology without us really being aware of it as well which
1: so, is which is interesting because I, I suppose yeah. the, the next question that comes from that is should mm. this be something we, we resist, or do you think yeah. once once we 're aware of this yeah. we can kind of counteract it well I think the first the first thing to do is to kind of illuminate it to yeah, real, to look should. at it and
0: understand it and that 's what I was trying to do in this book is to tr- is to try to kind of open up, really, a range of issues around the politics of circulation and also in the related articles about kind of academic work and and the politics of circulation, I've done short pieces, was I think we actually need to try to understand the way that something like algorithms changes research practices or changes the nature of sociology or whatever else it might be in the same way that we need to understand the way that it transforms culture and how it works and how how it's experienced. So I think the first thing to do is to try to get an understanding of those things I don't think it's, you know, sociologists, it's great if they take a strong view on these things and they feel whether there's positive or negative influence on those, they can communicate. But we need to get a greater understanding of how those operate in the first instance. And at the moment, I do think there was a bit of a blind spot. And that's what I was trying to uncover. And not you have got an understanding of those and people to reflect on whether or not they think these are problems, whether we should resist or whether we should attack those things or whether we should go with them and see them as positive and find ways of, of incorporating them into our practices.
1: And I think that came through really strongly in um, the chapter on data play, the sense of data being actually culture now, but also culture itself becoming data. And the two sort of uh, positions in in that chapter that that kind of are summarized by data play Mm -hmm. being very ambivalent, that in some ways they're kind of really good things, in Mm -hmm. some ways they're they're slightly problematic. But I wonder if you could sort of unpack that concept of data play.
0: Yeah, I mean the, the the idea of data play, wasn't it? That was I was when I was trying to think through what are the different ways in which data circulate back into culture, which was kind of the aim that um, I wanted to not just to write about the kind of archives, the kind of infrastructural side of things. I wanted to also think about practice. So the data play idea was thinking about the the different ways in which people use data or play with data in their everyday lives and how that then, as you say, becomes part of culture itself. So um, some of the examples I work with vary in terms of how... uh, I suppose, how like detailed their engagement with data is. So in some instances, it might be somebody creating a kind of friend wheel on Facebook or visualisation of friends on Facebook or visualising their, their taste communities on, on, on um, Last FM, for example, or something like that, you know, where people are kind of playing with the data as, as part of the kind of cultural practices, playing with data about culture, so it kind of feeds back into their practices. But then I start to think this is a bit of a continuum of data play here because what you've got, You've got data play going on where people might... It's kind of a kind of placid form of data play and where uh, people are engaging with um, charts, real-time charts about what's happening on iTunes. So you can see kind of where the buzz is. You know, they're looking for what's buzzing in culture and then that becomes part of the culture they consume. But then it goes right through to the stuff which I explore in a bit more detail in the chapter, which I call the kind of cultural visualisation, which is where people are engaging in really quite sophisticated... Uh, visual visual engagements and visual forms of analysis with cultural data and they're using it to create these quite snazzy and interesting and engaging visuals about the social world some of these are cultural some of them are a bit more um uh, uh, more socially orientated or politically orientated i suppose you might describe it as but it was the actual practice of it i was interested in the way that people play with data and you have APIs now that mean that data is available for people to play with. In terms of politics, you've got, you know, data.gov.uk and data.gov, you know, people being encouraged to play with data, and suppose, in different ways. So there's kind of all these invitations to play with data. at the more extreme end of data play you've got, people engaging in quite detailed forms of social and cultural analysis. Visualise the world in new the social ways, to the way that social scientists visualise the world, creating these visualisations that are really interesting and engaging. And I thought, actually, there is a question in that chapter. I, I sort of tried to directly address social scientists and say, look at what's happening. Look at these le- sort of forms of visualisation that these data visualisers are, are creating and how they're creating a new vision of social world. So the one that I use with my students, for example, is a visualization of when relationships break up on Facebook. It's using the status data. And there's uh, David McCandles' is the name, of the visualization expert, I think, who created that. And um, it shows you a kind of diagram of when relationships break up during an annual cycle. Really interesting kind of thing. It reveals something new. I mean, it might not be the type of sociology we want to do, but it is interesting that people are engaging that way, so my challenge to sociologists is, can we learn something from the way from the, this creative use of data? Can we learn something from the way that the social world is being visualized, but more importantly, shouldn 't we be responding to the way the world is being visualized and envisioned by these new data forms and these new and people engaging with and creating their own visualizations of the social and cultural world that 's a challenge in that chapter
1: yeah, and it's it, it sort of it comes home uh, really strongly when uh, you look at sort of contemporary discussions in um, cultural sociology that really, you know, focusing on um, sort of almost solely on Bourdieuian theory about explaining tastes when there's this whole other world um, of both, as you identify, infrastructures, Mm -hmm. visualizations, and forms of playing with data uh, Mm -hmm. that are actually kind of, um, mm. You know the way people live their lives through through culture mm. now the the other side of that though might be um, that whilst we have this kind of uh, abundance of data, we mm. also see a kind of closure um, of our opportunity to access particular forms of data um, mm. so you know Google are very protective of particular parts of Google um, mm. you know it can be quite difficult to get rid of your your facebook this This sort of thing. So I I wondered: is that another kind of? Is that an extension of the the ambivalence of these uh, technological changes?
0: the politics of circulation, types of access we get will vary, and the types of data that we get, that we get access to will vary. But the book itself was, was, I suppose, a response, actually, to some of those um, debates, because what I was thinking was that what we need to do in order to move some of the debates on about digital sociology and digital methods and all that, although the book isn't about that directly, there's a, a, short, um, a, a short postscript at the end of the book that tries to link it back into those debates. But it seemed to me that what we actually needed to do was get a better understanding of the data themselves in order to see what we would be able to do with it. So in order, we needed to, see, we needed to get a better understanding of how the data accumulate, how they're ordered, how they circulate back into everyday life, how they circulate back into culture. We needed to understand those things, I think, before we can move the debates on about digital methods and using digital data. Because there are forms of data out there we can use. I've written a paper with Mark Taylor where we use Last.fm data, mm-hmm. open access yeah, data to yeah. think about music tastes, for instance, there. I've, I've done a paper where I've you used you know, Twitter data as a way of thinking about um, a music genre, and that's a direct um, directly linked into the, the debates on, on, on field, field analysis and board in forms of analysis. So there are ways you can be creative about the data that is actually available, because there's stuff that we're never going to get access to because it's commercially it's too valuable. It actually is the thing, if you look at, you know, go back to Nigel Thurston and Capitalism, the data is where the value is in a lot of these forms. And I discussed that a bit in the Data Play chapter in relation to Facebook. You know, it's the it's the work people have put in, the data they put into their profile that is actually where the value is. So you're never going to get access to a lot of those things. But actually you can be created in some of these forms. But my argument in the book really is, we need to understand the data themselves, how they form, how they accumulate, how they circulate in order to move those debates on further, which might be then the next step.
1: Yeah, I suppose that one of the things that, that really shines through in the book, as you've identified, is the problem that um, critical sociology has been very eager to say something like Facebook is a form of social control. You don't have any kind of, you know, um, real sort of say yeah. in what your data is, is being used for, and you yeah. are a product, as it were. Um, yeah. But actually, the experience of people through Facebook is that they think it's brilliant, they love it, and it's kind of you know, almost changed their lives. So there is yes. this, this sort of yeah. problem that we need to identify, as you say, what's actually going on here first yeah. before we yeah. can start to make judgments.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, w- what I was hoping to do was, I suppose, sidestep a few of the debates about because you know there are important debates about surveillance and social mm-hmm. media, and there are important engagements with the users of social media and, and how social media have come to do different, mean different things in their lives and open up new social networks and the like. They're clearly really important, and what I want to try to do is a, sort of complement some of those debates with try, by trying to provide a slightly different perspective on the nature of those media and how they. How they how
1: they operate? Yeah, I think you did that really, really well in the book. I suppose that the final sort of um, question I have around the book is: what do you think we should sort of we should do now that we know how it all works? What what would be the kind of the next step um, for you um, to kind of recommend to maybe you know other sociologists, other critical theorists, um, yeah. or actually you know other members of the public? Yeah. I I
0: suppose it tried in the book to put um, suggestions of that within each chapter, in a way, because um, the the different chapters may require their own small-scale projects and, and the like. So if you take the one on algorithms, for instance, you know, the challenge there is maybe to... I tried to engage with some of the computer science material and algorithms, and it's actually quite hard to do because <laughs> it's that problem of cross disciplinary work and yeah. like. But there is kind of an engagement there with uh, with software design in a way, but it, it, it was hard. I think, the, so for example, in the algorithms chapter, you know, the challenge would be how do you get a greater understanding of the way in which those are designed? There are people doing that kind of work. If you look at uh, Louisa Moore, for example, or Adrian Mackenzie's work. You know, they are there is a sense there they're trying to understand the way that these algorithms play out, particularly in the security, in biosecurity, in the security setting and border control and that kind of thing. That's where a lot of the work's being done in that area. But it seems to me you could perhaps there's an the opportunity to expand that work out into cultural work, which is what I started in the chapter but stop. So each of those chapters attempts to open up a different aspect, a different dimension that could be pursued individually rather than as a collective project. You know, that that is the idea but then in terms of the kind of digital methods type project i think there are ways you can move on because you can start to see how you might understand the data in different ways and access it and try to work with it in different ways to think about metadata as something that needs to be understood and studied as well as the data itself to think about how infrastructures within social media shape people's experience and use of those social media as well as kind of how they respond to it. It's not a blank canvas kind of thing. It's an infrastructure that's got properties that shape people's practices, which goes back a little bit to kind of Lev Manovich's work, actually, I think, um, probably influenced by that indirectly. So there are kind of little avenues, I suppose, throughout the book that I think need to need to be pursued in different ways. So I kind of try to end each chapter with, with some suggestion of, of how that particular dimension might be pursued, because you don't necessarily need to take it collectively. You know, there can be... Uses individual kind of avenues, I
1: suppose. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Um, We're lucky enough to have sort of taken up uh, quite a bit of your time, Um, so thank you very much for talking with the book. Just before we go, I'm really interested in where you're going next, because um, and although you've talked talked a a little bit already about kind of uh, digital sociology and and, and that term, but um, your your blog, your work on Twitter. Um, which I suggest everybody listening follows, um, really kind of casts you as a digital sociologist. And mm-hmm. I know some of your, your kind of uh, current work at the moment has sort of uh, positioned yourself within that with, uh, with your new forthcoming book, if you'd like to mention, mention a bit about that.
0: So, just to go back to the blog, thinkingculture.wordpress.com, it was set up really at the time I started writing the book. So, uh, January 2012 was when I set that up and started working on it. I didn't know if I'd carry on at first, I wasn't really sure how I'd work, but I used Stuart Eldon's Progressive Geographies blog as a kind of model, and it is part curating content, part adding thoughts and reflections and things like that. Um, but the idea was that I wanted to see how the material circulated. So I've been using the stats on the blog as part of, kind of, to inform me about how things circulate. You know, because you can track things through the stats on there. And then it was much later that I started using Twitter. There's loads of people already already using that, I suppose, in a way. But the uh, I use Twitter predominantly to promote the blog posts and then to interact with people in response to those blog posts, really. Um, but the, the the blog has been built up over time, so. It was an attempt. It was really background work for the book in a way, but I've ended up carrying it on because it seems to have worked. Um, but what is the, the book kind of was, I wanted to do something different from the book we've discussed, the popular culture and new media book. And I've had an idea a while ago for the uh, punk sociology, and it was something that I think I I, I had it sometime during my PhD, so around about two thousand and three maybe. And the idea was that um, that I wanted to think, well, how can you kind of do sociology in a kind of punk way? I was listening to punk music while I was doing PhD and that kind of thing. And um, what I wanted to do, uh, it was a kind of an idea that had just been there, and it's just how I did sociology, in a way. It was something that informed the way I did sociology. I often look at music and things for inspiration, but book. I could write a short book on punk sociology that outlines that as a kind of approach. So I thought that through... I've developed it. The book's now written. It's, it's about 30,000 words, but it's not. I'm not submitting it to the publisher. I'm just working on the manuscript and trying to get it right. But it's it, in very simple terms. The book's an attempt to take the punk ethos and to try to apply that to sociology. So it takes the punk ethos as inspiration for thinking through how sociology can be done. That's the kind. That's the basic idea behind the
1: book. And um, when do you expect that will be out? Sometime next year, twenty. 20- Fifteen or
0: yeah. Um, well, it, it's the Polgrove pivot. The idea is it's kind of they turn them around quite quickly. I think they sort of off, they suggest it's about twelve week turnaround. So I'm hoping to get it to the publisher in the next month, so that it will be out in the beginning of 2014. I think would that that's probably the. End. I mean, the con- I'm not actually contracted to provide it for a year, but. Um, I got so excited when I was writing it that um, I uh, got a bit carried away <laughs> uh, with writing about um, how you apply the idea of progressive rock to sociology and try to think about how you, you do, do the opposite. So the, um, this, the, the ideas in the book were things that i have been thinking about for a while. So the book had came together quite quickly and I, I wrote it through from beginning to end over a few months and in between doing other things and um uh, so I've got the manuscript now, so I'm, I'm hoping that um, I've been through it once and it's still a bit rough, but uh, um, it's going to be a little bit punchy and, and, and that's kind of the idea. One of the ideas I wanted it to feel a bit like a punk album.
1: Yes, yes.
0: So um, which sounds ridiculous, but th- there's a lot of short chapters in there, so like short punchy chapters that take an issue and think it through. So the fir- but the opening chapter thinks about. The uncertainty within sociology, sense of uncertainty, um, the ongoing sense of crisis through the history of the discipline. So the the first chapter sets up some of the issues that face the discipline of sociology. So, so it's about the nature of uncertainty within the discipline and talk of a crisis, but also how that's kind of been part of sociology history right through. I use Chris Rennick's book, um, recent book on, on the history of British sociology to talk the look at the way in which you know, there was uncertainty about the direction of sociology from the early days uh, in, in Britain. And I think through those, but alongside that is questions about the kind of neoliberalisation of the university and questions about audit and measurement and metrics and how they are reshaping the practice of sociology as well. So what I've tried to do is think, well, how can you tackle those head-on? How can you tackle the kind of uncertain disciplinary uncertainty in these, these systems of governance? And my suggestion is that we need to be more bold and fearless, and we need to ta- tackle things in a particular way, and that we can take inspiration from the punk ethos in order to do that. So I set that up in the first chapter, And then the second chapter looks at the punk ethos in detail, using uh, biographies and punk histories and the like. And then the second half of the book is is short, punchy chapters that look at how we can communicate sociology, how sociological knowledge can form, the terrain of sociology, and attaches each of those to different features of the punk ethos um, in different ways. And then I conclude with some thoughts on how we develop that project and the limitations of it
1: that's great that sounds really really interesting hopefully we'll have to uh, get you back on to talk about that sometime next year um, so thanks very much for talking to us uh, about the book um, I recommend it to um, sort of a r- whole range of, of different readers not just uh, critical theorists and sociologists and they should check out your blog at thinkingculture.org and follow you on Twitter and your uh, is it Dave G. G Beer? David it's David, G. Beer. David G. Beer on Twitter great thanks very much for
0: that Dave no, thanks for engaging with the book. That's great.
1: Thank you. So you've been listening to New Books in Critical Theory with me, David O'Brien, interviewing David Beer from York University in the UK. We look forward to uh, welcoming you again to our next episode.